Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody, welcome to the program, and boy, are you in for a treat today. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Andy Kolber who is a uh, clinician and therapist in the Denver metro area. And uh, Andy and I have known each other for a while, ever since the release of my book and some mutual friends. Uh, We have interacted through social media and even through email, but we never met until last August, and we spoke at a mental health forum together in Denver. It was one of those forums that uh, is really enjoyable. It was sponsored by my church, and it was in a brewery, and there were both uh, Christian believers and unbelievers that were part of the panel, so it was a really unique perspective. And I saw Andy speak there and really appreciated her perspective. She's a dynamic speaker, but she has an understanding of personhood and what it means to be a person made in the image of God that I think is profound and helpful to anyone who is doing any kind of work around restoring the soul. If you are a pastor or a counselor or a caregiver, it's important to understand this whole concept of trauma, but specifically uh, our neurobiology and how that forms us. So more about Andi. She is a licensed professional counselor in Colorado. She is a writer who has published in Relevant Magazine, CT, Women, Encourage, and others. Andy specializes in trauma and body-centered therapies, including the highly researched and empirically validated EMDR, or eye movement desensitization. If you want to learn more about that, we touch on it in our conversation here. I have a previous interview with Barb Mayberger, who has written several books on EMDR. But we touch on that in the interview because it is an aspect that's highly regarded to bring about accelerated healing from trauma. So Andi is really passionate about the integration of faith, spirituality, and psychology and its significance on the church today. As a survivor of trauma and a lifelong learner, she brings hard-won knowledge around what change requires, uh, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God in our pain. She has been happily married to her best friend for over 11 years and is the proud mom of two children. 
she will be releasing her first book with Tyndale Publishers in January of 2020, and you can sign up for her newsletter to follow her writing and other activities and speaking engagements at a link that we included on the homepage of this interview. So let's jump in to Becoming Whole with Andy Colbert. Andy, I am really, really happy to be here live in the studio today. This is not a Skype interview, so thanks for coming. Yeah, it's great to be in person for this. And we get to have a sound quality that that will rival national public radio, so <laughs> it, it's going to sound awesome. But um, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you currently do. You are a licensed professional counselor in Colorado. Uh, we only recently, uh, several months ago, met face-to-face, but we've followed each other's work for a long time. Um, but as a therapist, you specialize in trauma. So tell me a little bit about yourself in that regard. Yeah. So I have been a therapist for about 12 years and kind of started off trying to figure out exactly um, where I wanted to sort of find my niche. And the longer I was doing my own personal work and working with clients, I began to see these strains of stuckness in a lot of different people. And it's so interesting because um, what I began to see is how related that is to trauma. And so I often say I do specialize in trauma, and I also say that all my work is trauma-informed. And so even when a person isn't coming into my office specifically related to what would maybe someone would think is a traumatic incident, I'm always using the lens of trauma to understand what's going on in their body and their reactions, um, their emotional regulation. And, and so I found it to be profoundly helpful for my clients and really for myself. I think the more I have done my own work, um, I am a survivor of, of, of some pretty significant developmental trauma in my own life. And, and that really has given me such compassion for my clients, too, to understand what they're experiencing. So as you did your own work, that was through counseling, but was your counselor initially a person who was trauma-informed and kind of understood this, or did you have to work your way into that like so many people I meet? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, my earlier therapists, I, I don't think this was as much at the forefront. And, you know, I think my time in seminary really began to sort of pull at the strings of, of, I don't think I ever understood how significant some of the things I went through were. And, and it was really like this sort of continual knocking on this door of, of there's more. And so it really took um, just continued curiosity about my own experience, um, about things that I myself would feel stuck with. Um, that, you know, I ended up meeting and finding a therapist that was more coming from a trauma-informed lens. And then simultaneously also my own training in EMDR and work around trauma-informed perspectives. Those sort of happened at the, a similar time. And it sort of cracked me open a little bit to um, how important this perspective is. So I want to get a couple things kind of as a foundation. First, define and discuss I sound like Linda Richmond on Saturday Night Live like <laughs> define and discuss talk amongst yourselves <laughs> um, people are going I didn't know he had a sense of humor um, define and discuss what exactly a trauma-informed perspective is what does that mean mm-hmm 
the way that I would define that is a broad understanding of our physiology and what happens when we experience a stimulus that is overwhelming and or terrifying and what's happening in our body. And so, you know, what that essentially means is understanding our nervous system and how that works. when you say a stimulus, you Mm -hmm. mean any experience or event, it could be an interaction Mm -hmm. where a school teacher looks at us uh, or a college student uh, has a school teacher look at them uh, in a really harsh way. And that creates a reaction. That experience creates a reaction inside of someone that what? Yeah. So a lot of that's going to be based off of probably their developmental history. Um, For example, if that same college student came from a family where they had what I would say is good enough parenting, um, where, you know, they're um, really sort of given a lot of comfort and love, as well as direction and correction. Um, when those things are present and the, the parents are attuned to that kiddo, the kiddo learns that, you know, that kind of reaction isn't the end of the world. But for that same student who maybe grew up in a family that where there isn't good enough parenting. And so the way that I would define that would be, um, parenting that is neglectful, um, not attuned to the needs of the child, um, outright abuse, physical or phys- or psychological, any of those things could, could sort of create that template for not good enough parenting. So that same student goes to college and they're in that situation with their professor and they have, you know, the professor um, has a harsh response. That is going to probably feel overwhelming to that student's nervous system based off of their history with their parents. Their earliest attachments um, were not safe, essentially. What might that student be feeling internally at that point? So that's a great question. And it's a little bit dependent on that person's physiology. But I think in order to understand that, we probably need to talk about the window of tolerance. Let's do that. Okay, let's do that. So um, the window of tolerance comes out of, I believe it was, it's kind of a combination of Dr. Dan Siegel and then also Stephen Porges, his work around um, polyvagal theory. They sort of work together on that. And so every person has sort of this window in which they can feel any kind of feeling. So it's happy, it's sad, it's mad. It doesn't, there is no good or bad feeling. They're just having a feeling. Um, But when our, that feeling comes outside of the window of tolerance. So on the, we'll, we'll call it the upside is anxiety. And on the low side, we'll call depression. And so when the feeling gets too big, Um, What happens is is usually someone's going to go on the upside to anxiety that's fight or flight. And that's going to be when essentially our prefrontal cortex is no longer online. So we're no longer thinking with the part of our brain that essentially has all our wisdom. And so people make some pretty bad decisions. (laughs) And and also not just wisdom, but the the logic and the ability to think through cause and effect and Mm -hmm. Um, that I'm safe today talking to this professor versus it's mom or dad yelling at me 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yep. And so it really is. So we're kind of living out of our amygdala. So it really feels like a crisis. And so whatever we have to do to be safe, um, that's kind of what what the lens we're living out of. 
And then for some folks, depending on their physiology, they're going to maybe go from that to the low side to de- the depression or it could or you could call it dissociation. And that's essentially where we just totally shut down. No words like a lot of folks, you know, sort of report that um, not feeling present in our body, feeling disconnected. Um, if you're with a person who's dissociated, you might be like, I don't know where you went. Right. They're there, but they're not there. Yeah. Uh, checked out numb so you've defined the high side or the upside and then the downside anxiety on the high side depression on the low side and you talked about that the cortex or the thinking part of our brain shuts down that's one side of the coin and then um, go to the other side and what then uh, gets flipped on you talked about the amygdala but talk a little bit more about what that reaction looks like yeah, I mean, so with when we're living out of that place, we're really, you know, it's like heart rate rises. I mean, rapid breathing. It's um, just reactionary. It's hyper arousal. So this is the same part of our body that gets flipped on when we need to move out of the way of a car um, coming towards us. And so it's really not the type of thinking that is conscious. Right. It's all reactionary. Again, our body. Say that one more time. Uh, instinctual, reflexive. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so when we're coming from that place, we are our our main priority, just based off of how our body is is built, is just to be safe. And so, if you think about that student with their professor, just trying to be safe, there's a whole range of pretty inappropriate things. That could happen, right? Right, right. I mean, there might be inappropriate words said. There might be, you know, depending on um, what's going on, you know, just there's just maybe a a desk that's flipped, maybe um, acting out to their classmates, or maybe they just totally shut down and they miss the rest of class because it was so intolerable to be with the feeling that came up from that criticism, that that is the way they were coping. And so I think it's important to name that it's it's not so much that the professor was, I mean, maybe they did do something shaming. Right, right. But, but I think it's important to understand that that doesn't have, that's not going to feel traumatic for everybody. Right. It's really our, our earlier narratives, our earlier uh, frameworks and templates that make us predisposed to having um, that kind of experience. So tell me if this uh, is an accurate description, but that so that the brain of that college student is reading and perceiving that professor as dangerous, unsafe, mm-hmm. as a threat. And so the cortex and the thinking part of that adult college student might go, oh, this is my prof who is generally a safe person mm-hmm. and um, – you know, they might have been scrunching up their face and talking harshly because somebody just stepped on their toe. That part shuts down, and it's the instinct part that's reacting because the brain perceives danger, even though there may not be danger. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And and I believe it's I think it's the hypothalamus that is the is the part of our brain that is it's subconsciously taking in information. And so it's important to note that this isn't about choice. Right. Right. So it's not the student sitting there like, oh, I'm going to just really 
give my prof a hard time today or like I can't wait to shut down in class. You know right. what I mean? Or I'm a Christian and I should I should never be unloving toward people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this this lens gives us such a different viewpoint and hopefully creates compassion um, for the experiences a lot of folks have in their body. And, you know, the more that we shame people for having these types of experiences, typically the more stuck they will be. Yeah. So let's come back to that and talk about what you called strains of stuckness. I love that phrase. Um, very few people have actually come through my door, and you alluded to this, saying, I have trauma and I want to work on it. Instead, they come for relational issues, addictive issues, mood issues, um, you know, any number of things. And then along the way, I discover looking through that lens that, oh, there's something going on in their body that is story related, that mm -hmm. has kind of wired them this way. Um, and it sounds like by you nodding that you have that experience too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we don't have a lot of language for this in our culture. And specifically, I think in Christian culture, we don't have a lot of language for, for what we're talking about here, um, which is why I think it is so important that we begin very overtly naming part of these experiences. Um, I think that a lot of my clients, you know, they have had what I would call little t trauma. And so I would delineate that from, from PTSD trauma, meaning, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. When I'm talking about little t trauma, what I mean is that it's any type of experience that feels overwhelming to our nervous system that doesn't get fully processed. So grief, loss, um, losing a job, friendship betrayals. Uh, there's, there's so many things that fit under little t trauma. And what I find is that when a person is, um, often it's that they're raised in a home where they're not really allowed um, or given any support around having feelings or, or just knowing how to work through feelings. And so what can happen is that over time, those little t traumas really build up. And so it's, you know, what we're talking about is a traumatic energy in our body. And right. it's, it's quite literally on a physiological level work. We're, we're walking around with all those little T traumas instead of having them been metabolized. Right. And, and I like to think of it as like all of those smaller traumas are in a pot. And when you have enough of them, it starts to boil over and then it becomes its own trauma mm -hmm. collectively. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we're definitely on the same page with that. And I, you know, there's definitely folks I work with who do have um, full on PTSD or full complex PTSD. But it's amazing how significant it is when we don't have the tools to work through our little T trauma and, and, and what a big difference that makes in terms of our quality of life. So what are some of these strains of stuckness that you see? that you eventually explore the underlying trauma? Hmm. I think a big one is um, a very active self-critic. Um, I find so many of my clients that I've worked with, and, and I get this because I think this is something I've, I've worked through in my own life, is, um, maybe I shouldn't say worked through, but always in process with, um, 
that it's it's connected to shame and that that heavy hand of shame I find to be one of the biggest areas of stuckness because as soon as someone begins to make some progress it's sort of like there's always a narrative that brings them back to why it is essentially not okay for them to change or not okay for them to take care of themselves or not okay to give themselves what they need. Yeah. And ironically, when we do that, when we sort of white knuckle it, we actually stay more stuck because we're not able to access what we actually need. That's so interesting because for me, um, early in my story of after my addictions were significantly dealt with my trauma came up after that Mm -hmm. and it was almost like the deck needed to be cleared before that trauma could um, actually be addressed and I remember in many ways thinking well I don't deserve to spend x amount of dollars on getting well Um, you know I could be spending this money on other things and it wasn't things like giving this money to the poor it was like i could be driving a volvo instead of a (laughs) 20 year old uh uh, ford escort or something like that but that that idea of how uh people self-critic and shame even keeps them from engaging in the process of getting well or doing that as long as they need to whereas if someone got a cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. they wouldn't say well i'm not worth it to -hmm. get chemo or treatment or something like that yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And and I think it's something, you know, I often, when I write or when I talk with folks, especially Christians, one of the things I often come back to is this idea of loving our neighbor as ourself, you know? And I think um, it's so easy, I think, for a lot of people to picture what it's like to love someone else. Um, but I think it's a lot more challenging for a lot of people to, to really sit with this idea of as ourself. Um, I think a lot of people take that to, me, to be selfish. Right, right. And isn't it interesting that the word love, God is love, but then to attach that word to anything that we would think is selfish, mm. how could that actually be the case? I remember years ago uh, speaking at a campus crusade conference and I was talking about this idea of self-love, Matthew 22, that you just quoted. And somebody literally stood up and said, that is a heretical idea because um, this is what that means. It's mm-hmm. That's a selfish reference. And yet, how can people love others if they can't love themselves? Because mm-hmm. it's you know out of the heart that flows. Um, so how do you overcome that issue? Um, that's obviously a big issue in our work, but you can't really go at that frontally or directly, mm. can you? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a big question, and I would say it's the trajectory of a life, in a way, um, is sort of this, it's sort of cultivating gentleness, I think, in a lot of ways, and um, and and be, and you know, coming from that verse of loving our neighbor as ourself, cultivating it almost like if we can't if we can begin to be gentle to ourselves, how much more then do we have to be gentle and loving towards others and so um, in my work often it looks like 
Well, there's a couple different things. I mean, I think the whole idea of self-compassion is really important. And there's been some um, great work done by Dr. Kristen Neff around that and just exploring it as a, um, a subset of mindfulness. And, and so I think that, you know, in itself, sometimes it can feel kind of big to, to think about self-compassion. So sometimes I think it's just beginning to only be present. I think before we can begin to bring compassion, we just begin to notice our experience. And it doesn't have to be, um, and just and just knowing, I think from even like as Christians, sometimes it's like just knowing God is with us and we're just here and we just observe that. And I think as we develop those skills, we can then begin to bring in some other skills like you know, what would it be like to imagine, um, you know, for me, like I have a, a daughter and a son and, and the love that I have for them. And so if I'm having a hard time being compassionate towards myself, sometimes I'll picture what I feel towards them. And I've done, you know, I've done this with my therapist. I've done, I do this even just on my own. And then I sort of help myself shift and just picture for me, sometimes it's, it's my youngest part of myself. And giving that same tenderness that I feel to that part of myself, knowing that that's also what God feels towards me. Right, right. And so there's this really beautiful connection between all those things. But sometimes we do sort of have to take um, a different way in because we've developed such resistance as we're talking about this idea of shame and self-criticism and what some people might experience on the more severe end of self-loathing or self-hatred, which uh, is, is really common in trauma, I'm aware that whether it's direct teaching or indirect teaching mm-hmm. in the Christian community, there's often this idea that we should feel shame and that we should carry shame and that without the inner critic and without the the knife in our back that's goading us forward, then we wouldn't, quote, obey or love or have our quiet time for that matter. So talk to me about that. I mean, there's there's an element of being nonjudgmental, like you said, about our, our shortcomings and our vulnerabilities. Um, but then there's another side where that kind of shame can actually work for us. It can kind of become a friend. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question, especially in Christian culture right now. And, you know, I think, and maybe not just right now, I mean, I think that's just one of those things we continually are talking about. I think there's a big difference between shame and healthy guilt. And I think we get those confused. And and I think it's important that we as humans, I think it's part of our experience to have healthy guilt. That is a part of saying, you know, I'm going to own this. This, like I did something wrong, you know, and, and there are many folks who have said, you know, shame is saying I am bad and um, guilt is saying I did something bad. And so I think in, in my experience that there's, that's so important. And again, I think it comes back to the window of tolerance. Guilt, I would say, is our window. Is we are in our window of tolerance. Shame, I would say, takes us out of that window. Wow, I've never thought of it that way. Keep going with that. Yeah. So, I mean, what we know is that toxic shame 
in, especially in childhood, as a, as a brain, a younger brain, shapes that brain differently. And, and it acts on that brain just like any other trauma. So, so essentially, it's a form of trauma. And I think that matters so much for this conversation that we're, that we're having, you know. And I think it means we need to be paying attention to the way that we communicate um, to each other. Um, in our churches, in our schools. You know, I think there's a huge movement around trauma-informed schools, which I love to see. And I, and frankly, I think we need that in our churches. And so, you know, coming back to what you say around um, it becomes our friend, that actually, it grieves me. Right. To, to know that that's true. And, and frankly, I've heard that a lot from a lot of my clients. It, it almost brings a tear to my eye because I know what that's like. I've lived that. And that's when something becomes so familiar to us, we return to it, but not because it's necessarily helpful. You know, you, th- you think about folks who return to abusive situations and they, they aren't necessarily doing that because it's helpful. Right. <laughs> They're doing it because it, it, it feels like home. Yeah. They, they don't have any other home to go to yes. that feels like a home, even though it's an abusive home. Yeah. And said simply, it's like there's no other coping resource or yes. strategy. You know, what you were saying around shame being sort of this catalyst for change. I hear that a lot. People, I think, wonder, well, if we don't feel shame, then, then why would we change? And I think that's a really big question that people think. And I think, I think a lot of parents wonder that too. Like, well, what will I do if I don't shame my kids? How can I get them to do what I want them to do? And I think there's such a huge difference between understanding that shame ultimately will keep us stuck. We might experience short-term sort of motivation. Right. But the thing is, is that we enter into a cycle and that cycle is the thing that, that then keeps us stuck versus, um, you know, and I forget who says the phrase, it's probably, it's come around a lot more around the, the gentle parenting perspectives, but it's basically first connect, then correct. And, and that's really for kiddos, but frankly, that's for me too. <laughs> like when I'm with myself and I mess up. Right. First, first it's kindness. First it's accepting that I'm loved, no matter what, even when I mess up, even if it's atrocious, whatever. First it's connecting with that. Yeah. And then it's where our prefrontal cortex comes back online, our cortex, right? And now I can learn. And now I have access to this part of myself that's really resourced. Um, and frankly, that's how I think we change. That's cool about the first connect and then correct. Um, I didn't put it in those terms, but I've been very intentional in my own spirituality to do that. Um, I was discipled, as perhaps many people were, that prayer or a quiet time is reading your Bible and then do acts, adoration, confession, uh, mm-hmm. thanksgiving, supplication. And then someone taught me, well, if you're really biblical, you should do cats and not acts. And we're sinners, and we need to confess first and get clean so that we can be in right relationship with God and then adore him because he's so worthy and valuable of that. And it's almost like proving to him that Mm. you're loving him enough. And then you say thank you for some things. And then you're kind of worthy of asking. Now, I'm overstating that a little bit, but not much. And 
that's almost like correction. You know, mm. like I, I better correct myself by confessing and then doing all these things. And I, I don't know about others, but I've lived that way versus connection, which so much of my, quote, time with God, which has been a big part of my healing process of just learning to be mm. and to be with. And so sitting down and I'm going to think of this now of connection first of just sitting and taking some breaths and just feeling the presence of God and feeling the presence of love and feeling that within and allowing that union that's always and forever there. So if I somehow mess up or sin or whatever, it's not like God's a parent who goes away to his bedroom and then closes the door and then comes back out. Um, But it's so freeing to think of that, that, that that's the heart of God. And as Christians, you know, we have this, this profound ocean of truth that we're immersed in that we're loved um, that we're not separated from God and that we're not defined by any kind of our brokenness so that connection is always the starting point you've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you to learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com 